Hey gang, Calvin here, coming at you again with a, another really quick update. Um, this is the fifth and uh, final episode of Christopher Livingood and I's discussion on The Last of Us Part 1 and 2. I really hope you have enjoyed it. Um, I, I really have. And actually, uh, now that I've done editing it, I've been working on this for weeks now. It feels kind of weird to be done. I don't know. It's kind of sad. But it's also happy at the same time. Anyway, a um, couple quick updates. Um, I am going to be on vacation. Uh, by the time you actually are hearing this, I'll be on vacation with actually Christopher Livingood. We're going to North Carolina. We're going to the Outer Banks, and I'm very excited. Uh, I haven't been on a vacation in about two years, as I know other people out there have dealt with the same. So to say that I am excited is a bit of an understatement. So with that said, I will be taking a week off. Uh, the show will resume September 29th. Christopher Livingood and I are going to come back and we are going to talk about uh, the video game Alien Isolation, uh, a game that I, I really enjoy and I think Chris did as well, and I'm really excited to share that with all of you. Uh, so again, keep keep an eye out for that, please, uh, September 29th. Um, but beyond that, uh, again, if you wouldn't mind, I would really appreciate it if you could give the Instagram a follow. I don't really use the Facebook all that much. There's more interactivity with the Instagram account. Um, trying to put up polls and trying to put up sections to ask questions. Um, and again, I would love to have like an audience participation. I, I want to be able to hear from people and to gather their thoughts. Uh, so that way it's not just so me and the guests, hopefully it can be a little bit more of a community. So I would really appreciate that if you could head over to Instagram, it's at the you show show, uh, and give a follow and please, uh, try to participate if, if, you know, if, if there's questions asked or polls or anything that you want to comment on or talk about. I, as hopefully you can tell, I, I love to talk and I love to have discussions about movies and films and video games, uh, everything else under the sun. So I would love to hear from you. Um, you can also reach out uh, the you show show at gmail.com if you have any questions or inquiries, anything of the nature, please never hesitate to reach out. I, I would love to hear from everybody. Uh, so without further ado, uh, here is our last and final episode on The Last of Us. Enjoy. So then, as Abby goes on, you know, through this three day cycle, um, she's finding out that the friends that she was with in the beginning of the game are getting killed one by one by one by one and through a whole system of reasons that could go on for days she tracks it down to ellie and she tracks ellie to this movie theater so you get to bear, play as bear with me while i interject really quickly because ellie in her final act of brutality tries to put into practice an interrogation technique that she'd watched or heard joel talk about before where she pits one ally against another in the process, it goes wrong because she's not Joel. And she ends up killing not just Owen, but his pregnant girlfriend. Yeah, and yeah, and that's another very impactful one of the critical games. critical to what happens next and why Ellie survives at all. <laughs> yeah, and that's when Ellie finds out that she was pregnant. And that's when 
again, this humanity of this revenge story sinks back in. You know, you come back to ground level. And so now... Ellie certainly does. Yeah, she is horrified. So now there is then this confrontation of Abby and Ellie. In terms of a segment of a game, I did enjoy it. It was very reminiscent of the uh, restaurant scene in the first game of this kind of cat and mouse hide and seek, very tense style of gameplay where you got to kind of think two steps ahead um, that segment I didn't really like. I thought it stood out really well in terms of an interesting mechanic because that's, again, the other half of all of this is then there's a video game you have to play. Um, and for that, I didn't really like it. Um, naturally, I, I, as I was playing it, I don't know about you, but as I played it for the first time, it was very much like, I have no idea how this is going to pan out. Um, and that was really cool. And the fact that they make you play it as Abby was also very interesting because now you have to go punch and beat up Ellie, who is a character that you love from the first game. One of the most intense segments in the game is sneaking with Lev, with Lev's help into the theater, knowing that this is the moment where you're about to, you assume kill Tommy and uh, kill one of their other allies. And so you get to be Abby, quietly creeping through the upstairs window down into the sort of atrial front area and, you know, around the back of Tommy as he's, you know, talking to himself and making light of some joke they were talking about earlier about him being kind of an idiot. Um, And it's sort of then that you resume that cutscene where from your perspective now, um, you know, Ellie comes through the door and she's sort of, uh, preceded just by a split second by Jesse, who you immediately shoot in the eyeball, <laughs> and, and then it goes south from there, and you end up with Ellie basically chucking ass down into this, like, as fast as she can, uh, down into this theater area and across the stage, and you have to chase her backstage, and she begins hunting you. And you've played this character for so long, you know how this is going to go. She's super sneaky. She has a knife she's really good with, and uh, she's a real threat. And now she's armed on top of that. She has an actual gun. And you have no gun and just are big. And you, and don't, have your, you don't have your friends. Yeah, and your friends yeah. are, are otherwise you know, dead or busy somewhere else. And so you find yourself in a situation where, just through sheer brutality, you are going to stomp her face in. And as a player who really loved Ellie and had sort of just gotten to begun empathizing with Abby, my thought was, and, and this was very much designed, I read in interviews later, it just wanted them to stop. And you can't. You have to see it through. You have, yeah, it, it forces you to, to push through this. And I remember I was like, because I didn't, at that point, I didn't want either character to die. I didn't want either of them to have to go yeah. through this. So this fight breaks out. Uh, Abby is beating Ellie through the floor, literally. Yeah, <laughs> as she as she would, and it's actually Lev. And again, it's this then it, who steps in and says, um, "Stop!" Because Abby is about Slip to throw slit Dina. Dina's throat. And and I believe the quote from a broken arm to beat to a pulp Ellie is, "Stop! She's pregnant." And Abby pulls her knife across Dina's throat and says, "Good." Makes eye contact, begins to cut her throat, and Lev draws her bow on Abby and says, Stop. 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 She had nothing to do with it. She's pregnant. 
Lev saves the day. Abby, Ellie, uh, Abby drops the knife. And I, I don't know about you, but I, well, I'm sure I know what you're going to say, but I, 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 I believed it because I, you know, there was like, there's a lot of people that were saying that like in that moment, you know, Abby's friends all died and she was just filled with rage. Of course she would kill Dina and, and probably Ellie at the same time too. And for her to stop doing that, is like you know people have pointed out like some un quote unquote unrealistic things of the game and i think that through so much pain and grief that abby has gone through along with ellie but she doesn't know this that there is a part there's got to be a part in all of us to say enough is enough to stop to stop a form of insanity well and you can even see that in the moment in the atrial hallway to the theater where she says, we gave you a gift. We let you live, you know, um, that she is still bargaining against having to do this, you know? And I think that the, there's still, you know, there's that, that moment where Owen speaks up before Ellie's killed when Joel is being, you know, murdered. Um, there's that Owen part of her that's in there saying that she shouldn't do it. There's, there's the fact that she's not by nature was not raised to be cruel. She was raised to be compassionate uh, by a, by a very compassionate father. Uh, and whether Joel killed, you know, Jerry or not, she's not by nature a violent person. Ironically enough, she has had to make herself this and it just takes the presence of Lev in that moment to tip the scales. Because I think that the critics, the thing that they're not perceiving in that moment is this is not something she wants to do. It is something she is very good at doing and she is willing to do, but it's not something she wants to do. A lot of times representations in films can force you to look at really what they're trying to say with a character or a situation. So for example, Abby, like we talked about, she is ripped head to toe. She is just one muscle and she is very strong. But I feel like in her flashbacks to her childhood, she wasn't. Letting you know that she did not, you know, she will eat a burrito in three bites. She will smash her face in with a baseball bat. She does not have time for grooming. She does not have time for your bullshit. And that is who this person is. And I found that to be a really great characterization because who fucking would? It's the end of the world. Yes, but I also feel, though, like there's a still a part of it, though, that it's like it's a shell. It's a it's a representation yeah. of a shell of somebody that like is there out of necessity. Hundred percent agree. I mean, all of her flashbacks, her her PTSD manifests as dreams of rushing to the operating room where Jill had just murdered her father over and over again as a fourteen year old girl. That is who she is deep down inside. Is she is her father's daughter, and she is heartbroken, and she is a raw nerve and. That is what makes her a good character is because it's quote unquote unpredictable of a woman to do this. That's why she is the character that they chose, you know, like, like a lot of times, like, you know, you're watching a movie and it's like general people, general actors. And then all of a sudden there's like a really well-known, like Samuel Jackson steps on and it's just like, oh, well, he's obviously going to be the main yep. character because 
but they need a good actor to portray the character to stand above the rest. And that is Abby. That is what a character is. They We are focusing to tell you this character's story because they are an interesting character, because they're an interesting aspect to challenge your perception of the world. Um, I remember a very good friend of mine, actually Mike Graff, he was uh, on uh, some episodes a while ago. We talked about some some, some good movies. Uh, him and I, he and I once talked about... Um, you know, like what is art? And I, I, his definition, and this really stuck with me my whole life, was that art is anything where you can look at it and then walk away from it thinking about life even just slightly yeah. different. And That's Abby did that yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's is what is weird out of both of these games is that Abby did that to me personally more than Joel and Ellie did between the two games. And um, I really like Abby's character. I actually, I would venture, I'm very confident that she is my favorite character of the entire series yep. now. Um, and um, and that's not just to be like hipster, to be like, oh, the person that everybody hates the most, I like the most. No, she's an incredibly, I, if they don't make a Last of Us 3 that features Abby, I will be, as a, the, I will call myself the world's biggest fan of this game. I will be so fucking pissed if they don't pick up her story thread. She is not my favorite character. Um, and that is not because I do not absolutely love that portrayal or that character or want to see where her story goes. It is because um, I think what happens between you and I is that I baked my feelings, my sentiments about Ellie and Ellie's emotional complexity and awareness of how she minds her boundaries, her mistrust, her damage, all of this. I studied that character for seven years before this game came out. Yeah, see, and I played the first one, and then a week later was playing the second yeah, exactly. one. Exactly. So, yeah, and so I, so I think that there's something that happens when I've had the, the seven years to really ruminate on that character and really, you know, there are times where I've been just walking around in my life and been like, I'm going to spend five minutes really thinking about how they sort of came up with her perspectives, her dialogue, etc., and times where I've kind of said to myself, well, you know, does this feel like a pseudo-realistic interpretation of a 14-year-old girl in the apocalypse? And so I think that the the sort of creative aspects are really impressive about who Ellie is. I think the way they represent the actual finite details of who she is as a, as a young woman are really well-crafted. But that's not what makes her my favorite character. What makes her my favorite character is how her and Joel showed love to each other, which is two deeply, deeply hurt people who never had any reason to open back up again, but who are so desperate to, and watching them dance around, accepting each other's flaws, accepting that they are not who the other one wants the other one to be, but who that because of that, they are perfect for each other. And when that is taken away from her, watching her grieving process to me is what made me respect her character so much more because she is unlike Abby. Abby is not a uncontrolled force of nature. Abby is a very calculating professional, um, professional violent person who has very, very deep feelings, but they're ultimately feelings she doesn't really internally grapple with seemingly. She just sort of does what comes to mind. She's a very flat oblique processing kind of person. Whereas Ellie, it takes her a lot of time to come to what's right, and not just what's right for her, but what's right for other people. There's an enormous arc there that for Abby, the arc because of the kind of... And we know people like this who just sort of intuit the right thing. 
perhaps after doing the wrong thing for quite some time, to take the leap and just one day be like, fuck it, this isn't working, so I'm doing this other thing now. That's a thing that I have done. But I am more often a very internal person. So for me, I think it's that I, I identify much more deeply with Ellie and with the sense of loss and with the way that her and Joel's arc terminates in so much give and take, you know, uh, including the loss of a couple fingers um, and how that really visually is, is a visual representation of the uh, the cost of going down this road for her. And um, that to me is feels more relatable ultimately. That's yeah, I understand that. Yeah. And it's funny that you, like what you were talking about with like with with see with like with Abby is like I feel like my life is a little bit more reflective of that of like I had a I had a goal, I had a focus burned into the middle of my brain around the age of I want to say like fifteen. And to be a million percent honest, I don't think I've ever veered off that path even still now at the age of thirty four. And I'm lucky that I had it. Um there's people that don't and I couldn't imagine a life uh, that I would have if I didn't. And so like, that's maybe then why I'm probably also picking Abby as my favorite character is because she had just this yeah. goal in her head and it was like, okay, to get goal, I must do X, Y, and Z. And that is 100% who I am. It's like, okay, I need to do this. Yeah, when she has to change that goal at a moment's notice, she just goes, fuck it. Okay. And does the thing. And with, Ellie, I think, you know, my experience with like when I was 17, I'm a ninth grade high school dropout. So when I was 17, I had made the decision to be emancipated, to take out a student loan so that I would legally be able to take out a co-signed with my parents student loan to move to Los Angeles and study special effects makeup because that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And I was totally in love with it. And I loved being an expert in something. I loved having validity and having a real knowledge base that could be helpful to other people. And when it became obvious to me that it was not a career I would have continued in given the choice, it took me 10 years to let go of that identity. It, it takes me time to realize I'm doing the wrong thing and then to begin correcting my attachments to it because my buy-in is so high. And I think I identify with Ellie because her buy-in to this revenge is really representative of her buy-in to Joel. She believes that Joel's way is the right way. She is doing what Joel would have done for her. This is fair. She's doing what's fair. And so the attachment to that is so much grippier than really what Abby's experiencing, which is this vectoring, sliding from one scale of right and wrong to another based on her initial Sakura moment, momentary sort of uh, right and wrong sensors. And... I'm really impressed by that characterization, but I don't relate to it as much. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, what I find actually really cool about this conversation that we're having right now is that uh, here are two straight white men that are talking about which women they yeah. identify with better. Which and I think that's absolutely cool. And hero again, of, you know, uh, I mean, and that's the other thing is like both of these women, we're talking about the sort of mortal failings of obsession and revenge and hatred and anger and grief. And the reality is both of these women to me are the most compelling female heroes or, or protagonists, not antagonists. And they sort of stand on their own as characterizations that are worthy of, you know, ardor that are worthy of looking up to in so many ways, partially because they're willing to do the heavy emotional lifting to bypass 
PTSD, to bypass grief, to ultimately land in a place where even at great personal cost, which it does come to, they do the right thing. And they lay the work, even though it's left fairly open-ended at the end, to make for a good life. And to me, that is, you know, it is not heroic to complete the revenge. It is heroic to set it down at the last moment. Okay. Come sit. I got something to show you. So I've been putting out feelers for months now. And this new guy heard my story. He told me about a woman that he traded with while he was moving through California. Described her as built like an ox, traveling with a kid with scars across his face. He said they're living along this coast in a beach sailboat right here. That's got to be her. We're done with that, so. Yeah, so let's talk then the fourth part, the the the, the classic four X. The bucket loved the end of this game, and I must ask you, how did you feel? Uh, both the, the end end or the fourth part? The fourth part. Okay, Abby, Ellie, they fight. Lev says, "Don't kill each other." Abby puts down the knife, puts down Dina. Everybody goes home. Dina and Ellie build a farm. Uh, Dina's given birth. They're, they have a family. They're raising a child. They're living on a farm. It's cool as fuck. It's beautiful. Um, it's like, it's like, honestly, like, I just kept, I, as I was playing that in my head, I was like, okay, credits can roll at any moment now. And this is a great ending to a game. But it keeps going. It's, it's, I, I guess what I would say is that the the farm scene is so beatific. I, did you go out into the field and sit on the tractor? Oh, a million percent, and, yeah. Yeah, so, so, I mean, they give you options to really be in this happy ending. You are, you are offered the opportunity to be in love, to listen to music with your country wife, Dina, to bounce a baby who you keep referring to as a potato on your knee, who you obviously have the best relationship with, to make faces in the mirror, um, you know, and on and on. It is a wonderful, beautiful day. The rolling hills of Wyoming are in front of you. Jackson is close enough at hand. You can go see your friends if you want to. It's all worked out. Yep. Yeah. And it's just like, I get, like I said, it was just like, I just, I was like, okay, credits roll. Done. But it keeps going. Um, through uh, a various set of circumstances, uh, we find out that Abby has been spotted in California. Uh, behind the scenes, we find out that she's been kind of uh well we we find out because a now blind and lame tommy who actually survived his gunshot wound uh comes demanding that since he can't finish the job that you know ellie must yeah tommy's in a real real bad way you know he's he's got he's got a he's got a limp to him now he's He's scarred from his wife (laughs) yeah he can't go and he brings it up to ellie and yeah like i'm sure you know for me like the like you like the first time I played through it. It was just like, dude, what are you doing? Like, come on, man. Like, you're just stoking the fire. And long story short, Ellie Ellie goes back out. 
And well, and, and Ellie goes back out for a reason that's played through as a theme for both Abby and Ellie, which is that they both have profound post-traumatic stress disorder. They are panic-ridden, anxious, um, broken husks trying to tilt at some sort of next beat, you know, trying to commit to a future. Uh, Abby is off doing her thing. Ellie is trying to forge this life with someone she loves very deeply. And it's a good life, but she keeps seeing Joel's busted up head and hearing him scream and, you know, waking up in cold sweats, we assume, and is just living in utter disquiet and it's getting worse. And when Tom visits, it triggers, uh, a compulsion in her. There's a scene where at night she wakes up and, and baby JJ and Dina are asleep in bed beside her. And she closes a window and goes downstairs. And as she closes the other window downstairs, she knocks over the, the guitar that Joel gave her. And she begins to play. Um, it's a Pearl Jam song, actually. Um, and it's it's a really beautiful song. The actual song is okay, but the Joel rendition and, and later the Ellie rendition is vastly more compelling. And she hits a few of the chords, and that makes her decision for her. You know, this man who promised he would teach her to play guitar did, and he's dead, and she didn't do right by him. And Abby's still out there. Abby's still out there. Now she knows it, and she knows where she is. And so in, in the nighttime, in the early morning, rather, she packs her bag, and Dina and her have a confrontation where Dina just says, look, you, you this is not all there is. Revenge is not all there is. You have us. And to me, that it's just kind of like I spent the entire time just being like, she's fucking right. But if you're telling me there's more game here, <laughs> um, like I totally agree with Dina. You're, you're an idiot. You should drop your bag take off your pants and go curl up in bed, you know, like that's, that's the right play. But also I wonder what California is going to be like. And Ellie is at a place where she can't let go. She hasn't let go. And, and that's because she hasn't processed this grief. Go back to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning. Okay. I have to finish it. You don't owe Tommy anything. I don't sleep. I don't eat. I'm, I'm not like you, Dina. What? You think this is easy? For you and for him, I deal with it. I love you. Prove it. Stay. So what? I'm just supposed to, to sit here and wait for you? For God knows how long? Just thinking you're fucking dead the entire time? I don't plan on dying. Yeah, well, neither did Jesse. Or Joel. Hey, stop. Hey. Hey. Come on. We've got a family. She doesn't get to be more important than that. No. I'm not going to do this again. 
That's up to you. get dropped into chasing Abby in California. And, and just at that moment, it does that thing again, where all of a sudden you see some converse. And I love that what comes into frame in California is a set of converse canvas shoes, which is what Ellie wears for most of the first game. And it's Lev wearing them with Abby following. Oh, okay. I didn't see, I didn't even catch that. That's, that's pretty yeah. cool. Because it's just Joel and Ellie told a different way. I thought that was such a great callback. And they're looking for, they've heard, they traded a gun even to a stranger for some information and said, there's a Firefly place uh, base uh, underneath one of these houses in the suburb. And so they're looking for any way to track down the last remaining Fireflies to carry on with the original mission to save the world. And um, they get lucky. They, they actually find it. And they try radio channels and they find someone on Catalina Island, and he asks him for some information. She says, well, I was, you know, Jerry's daughter, and, you know, identifying herself as the daughter of the leader of the Salt Lake City Fireflies. And he said, you know, we thought we weren't going to find any more survivors. You know, there's almost 200 of us. You should come to Catalina Island. And as they're exiting this building, having finally, like, gotten a lead after what seems to have been quite some time, uh, they're ambushed by yet another group, and every survivor group's different, and these guys are motherfuckers. They're slavers. Yeah, they're slavers that uh, like to weaponize the zombies, which I thought was also a bit... Okay. That's always a bit of a creepy factor. The yes. are all ex-cops. Uh, okay, I see. I didn't even pick up on that. No, I didn't. Yeah. They might not be actual cops, but they are kitted out like you know California CHPD. Yeah, they've got they got they got bulletproof armor on. They've got some really good guns. You can pick some of them up along the way with a silencer, which I was like, sweet, thank you. I get my silence playthrough, thank you. And um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and that whole segment too was really well done in terms of again combining everything now that you have learned to get through it uh, by any means necessary. And that was really cool because for me it was it was a Great combination of stealth, followed by guns, followed by traps, which are all things that you can do in the game, kind of escalated all into one area where I had to use all of this masterfully because I was running out of ammo, so now I have to set traps. I have to be sneaky so I can get more ammo. And it's an intense sequence because the Rattlers are sort of uh, what feels like they don't dive into their backstory that much, but they seem to be almost like motorcycle gang rules, might makes right, toughest guys in charge. And... Their entire methodology for subsistence is that they capture stragglers who happen to be passing through. They make them slave themselves to death on farms, and if they act up, they crucify them by the beach and let them die in the sun. You know, they're very awful people, but also they're just people. So yeah. if you have the wherewithal, while there's a lot of them, and again, they're totally heavily armed, they've got a lot of dogs, which are never any fun to fuck with— um, if you have the wherewithal, you can slaughter them. And I gotta say, the one thing that game really did for me was it gave me some real, at the very end, it showed me what real bad guys look like and let me go ham on them before it showed me <laughs> Abby. And that was really well done. So yeah, like you mentioned, there's all these people on the beach that are being crucified. They're just strung up on wood posts and it says find, like your objective is like find Abby. And I don't know about yeah. you, but for me, it actually took me a while because 
I was looking for the ponytail. I kept going to the back of everyone's head. I know. And then all of a sudden... And you were looking probably for the big, beefy, rugby player female physique. And what instead you see is this, you know, exsanguinated Levin Abbey with their hair roughly torn out, basically. Gone. Just gone. Oh, God. Yeah. and Sunburned, you know, like a leather football, you yeah, know? Starving, super, like, has thinned out. And that was just like, oh, my God. Like, that, that was like a, oh, shit, like. The loss of one's hair is the loss of one's identity. You know, even if you went shaved to see somebody next with hair would be shocking and astonishing. And um, and that was, I, I was taken back by that. That was like a, oh shit moment. Um, and and again, this the, the, the sinking of humanity should hopefully be hitting you at this point that like this person has seen some shit they've been through some shit and now you're here again on a mission to kill them and it's just like oh fuck man um so another fight ensues uh this one not nearly as intense as the one that was back in the theater it's interesting because it's not even really what i would call initially a fight uh you know abby is on a cross lev is prone and available to be killed and and Ellie does the right thing initially, which is lets them down off the crosses and or off of the poles. And Abby realizes who Ellie is, and I think she says it's you. And then she quickly, you know, protectively goes over to Lev's side and cuts Lev down and cowers sort of protectively around Lev and just says, There's there's boats out on the water. We can take them and we can leave and is in no way, shape or form looking for a conflict at this point. Her entire focus is that Lev be okay. And it's, it's, and there's that scene. So if they're loading up the boats, Abby and Lev are going to take their own boat. Ellie's going to take her own boat. They're going to leave this place and again, drift paths and Ellie's loading up her backpack and she like, the way she puts her backpack down, it's just like, oh, fuck, here oh, we go. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, fuck, yeah. dude, come on. And again, I like, can't let you leave. Yeah, you know, I cannot let you leave again. I cannot let you get away. And that's, yes, that's what then ensues this fight is Ellie initiating. I can't let you leave. Tell, tell me about that moment from your perspective, because I, I obviously have very strong positive feelings, but what was your experience with it? I, 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 I liked it as a storytelling device. It was, it was, again, repetition is a hard thing in storytelling, in my opinion. So it was just kind of like, oh, God damn it, here we go again. Because in the theater, I didn't want either of them to die. In this moment, I, again, don't want either of them to die. But to do it again... 
it didn't have the same impact, but it was still well-deserved. And again, I don't think there's any other way that it could have been done. So for that, they did it correctly. Um, and I understand, too, we have talked about, like, history repeating itself. Like, um, you talked about, like, the WLF member, uh, the leader was involved with, like, the, the militia that led up yep. to the post-apocalyptic happening effectively, effectively through excessive militarism. And so these themes of history are repeating, and it's like, okay, here we go again. Um, yeah. And so for, as a theme, yeah, I really like it. As terms of, like, a um, impact, an emotional impact of that moment, it didn't hit as hard as it did back in the theater, but then again, maybe it wasn't supposed to. Um I think it's supposed to, and I could be wrong about this. I can't know the storyteller's mind more than what they've said in interviews. I think what it is supposed to be is a moment of grim resignation. Uh, she just really wants to do what she thinks Joel would have done. And she can't, she, she's also in such pain that she can't really think clearly anymore. It, uh, in terms of emotional pain and grief, she's just been carrying this weight and by blotting Abby out of existence, maybe there's some release there. And it's in those last moments as they have this fight in hip deep water where you have a very wounded Ellie and a very starved Abby who's in neither of whom should be fighting anyone. And, and it's not like fighting Abby before you can feel how weak she is. You can, She's experienced, she's the better fighter, but she is no longer strong. And and so you're able to pretty quickly dispense with her. And in the process, she does, I mean, she fights for, she's fighting for Lev's life because Lev is unconscious and malnourished. And so she fights like a wild animal. And that includes lopping off two of your fingers, just literally chewing. And I, I don't, I think she spits them. She does. I'm not sure. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah, so I she, remember that. She yeah. fights off a couple of your fingers as you're pushing her underwater and eventually you begin the process of drowning her in the too with the Abby Ali fight too I think it's also again in terms of like um, themes of history repeating itself with Abby with Ellie also then accepting okay I'm at Joel is then breaking that history cycle because if you pursue you know quote unquote being Joel yeah then you pursue and you you repeat his errors and his mistakes of again killing people torturing people robbing people thieving people and and ending your life you know, getting shot in the knee with a shotgun and hit in the head with a golf club. And I don't think that's how anyone in this world wants to go out, probably no, including Ellie. That's a pretty bad way to go out. That is not, that's not what Dr. Dre was going on about. In all those <laughs> and so uh, it's like well, the only way to break the cycle, to break that history, to break that chain is to stop, stop yeah. and break the chain. It's you, if you don't, this will all repeat. This will all happen again. And if she kills Abby, then somebody else is going to be seeking the revenge of Abby and Ellie, and it's just going to keep going. And look, they're 
The 10,000 foot view on all this is that it is very much a simple story about breaking the cycle of revenge, which is not a new story. It's just never, I think, been told with this much aplomb and this much sensitivity and respect to the quiet change and impact of time. Getting to your point, getting to the ending, 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 ending. Oh my gosh! We actual made it. fucking ending, not the, the actual ending. Thing. Maybe it's the ending, but no. Then there's please stop trying to kill each other. No, the actual ending is very short. Ellie returns to the farm. She's missing two fingers. Well, it, it, and I love that because the farm scene opens up and you see that the wheat is now like past its prime. The farm, you know, peeling and cracked. Some time has passed, and the camera's centered on. Her missing two fingers <laughs> as, a, as a way of opening, and they're now mostly healed stumps. So quite some time has passed as she's returning to the farm. But one of the things that we talked about that I don't think you picked up on that I thought was pretty noticeable is, and on the other wrist is is the Hamsa bracelet, which is a, a gift that Dina had given her, and, and it's a Jewish symbol for good luck and protection and, and sort of a symbol of their relationship. And... She isn't wearing it in California when she walks out on Dina. And if there's any if there's any question about whether ultimately Ellie has a happy ending, it's that she's returning to the farm after quite some time has passed and she is wearing the bracelet again. Okay. So her and Ellie are Dina and Ellie are still at least they are still close in some way. Or a capacity of Ellie is then going to work on getting them close yes, again. Yes, there, there's there's intention in that. That is not a Naughty Dog is is very uh, detail aware, so that is certainly not included accidentally. You know, that's one of those things that they just would never miss in a million years. So we know what it indicates is that there's a, a promise of some sort of future there, even though she threw it all away to go on, you know, to finish her revenge quest and came back missing some fingers and probably having almost bled to death. Um, you know, that Dina is still somehow how part of her potential future or current future. And um, you walk through the house they shared together and you're back there for something. You're, you're, you have your backpack, I think. I, I don't think she's armed uh, this time. Um, and you go through and everything has been cleared out. One of the things I loved is that Dina on moving out made the bed. This is lips and it is crisply set up with like clean folded sheets for the next person who finds that house so that they will have a comfy <laughs> place to sleep and that tells you everything you need to know about Dina. That's um, funny I didn't notice that. 
Yeah, and her the only room that hasn't really been cleaned out uh, wholly is Ellie's art room. Ellie spends a lot of time sketching and painting. Um, and up in that room, you know, some pictures she had drawn of their baby JJ and, and of Dina have been taken. But for the most part, it's all been sort of ready packed to go, except for there's a guitar case. And that's the guitar that Joel gave to her. And um she opens it up and sits down in front of this sunny window in this empty house. And there's been this mechanic throughout the game that I thought was really good. So the station controllers have this rough sort of two inch by three inch section between the joysticks where you can touch things and move things around, kind of draw symbols in some games or other things. And in this case, the way you use it is to aim your thumbstick in a direction for a particular note and strum for different strings. And so you can sort of, in a rough way, play guitar in the game. And this time she goes to fret, and of course she's missing some pretty important fingers, her her ring finger and her pinky finger, and she goes to play the song that Joel first played for her the first time he ever sang for her, that she's been playing throughout, that she's never been able to play because the grief was too great. Now she's unable to play it because the grief cost her too much. Yeah, physically. I think that is... Chef's kiss. I know it is sensational, and I know it is, uh, I guess, a little futzy, but I'm a sucker for a well-told trope, and I think that's, that's so good. Well, it's interpretive, because, I mean, that's 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 the thing, is like, and I know that you said you wanted to talk about it, so it was like, for me, it was, it was for me, because we've mentioned it's, it's a story of revenge, and revenge and violence leads to more violence. Violence begets violence. That's a sentence that I've said many times in my life, and I will always say it. It's if you, you know, I've been in situations, and I'm sure you have too, where, you know, person A is really mad at person B, and they say, yeah, I'm going I'm, I'm gonna to kill that person. And, of course, they don't. People just say things like that. But, like... The weight of saying that, and then even furthermore, the weight of ever being able to pull something off is insurmountable in terms of the weight that it brings onto anybody. Violence is a heavy bag to carry around this world, and it has consequences, and it has bad associations attached to it, violence in any capacity. And so for me, it was like the ending of her missing the fingers, the... The guitar are the strings that she has to Joel. Um, yeah. That's all that she has left, especially in this world where, like, it's a post-apocalyptic society. There's not many things left in the world to begin with. And this is the last thing that strings her to Joel, the person that, you know, was a father to her, was family to her, was a friend to her. And through her decisions of violence and through her decisions of revenge has now lost that because you have to pay like you got to pay the piper if you're gonna if you're gonna commence if you're gonna commence violence you gotta pay you gotta you gotta pay something up you do you gotta give something up so and so playing through this game and seeing them do such an, an incredible um worthy job of amortizing the cost of violence um really really resonated with me and, you know, the only other person I, I think kind of is of that talent is like Cormac McCarthy. And holy shit, you want to make your heart hurt, read some Cormac McCarthy books, you know, like they're, they're brutal, they're unrelenting. The human cost in them is absolute. Like there's no bridge that is too far. Um, he is telling you a story about what monsters we can be and making you pay the whole time. And, and I have an attraction to that stuff 
because um, I think that we're all sort of always teetering through the organization of our society and the sort of cultural lessons, you know, just a hair's breadth from this invisible world that lies on the other side of making the choice for violence and for vengeance and for hate and for all those negative motivators. And, uh, you know, it's not like we don't live with those things. We, we live in America, at least where this podcast is being recorded. And in the first world nation, you know, there's this veneer that violence is very far away. But the reality is that, you know, people are monsters and, and there's really not that much separating us. What separates us is our choices. And sometimes those choices are harder to make than others. And when grief is the primary motivator for something like revenge, I think those choices are extremely hard to make. Because the anger isolates us from the absolute emotional destitution of grief. And in that moment where she can no longer play the guitar and she has sacrificed so much up to and possibly including her relationship with Gina, with Dina and little baby JJ um, and at great personal physical cost um, that she has found sort of this way to kind of set Joel down. And in that she sets the guitar down and walks away and the closing is just on the neck of that guitar as she makes her way through the field, we assume, back to Jackson. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I like that, because it's, it's, it made me think then, too, about what we were talking about earlier again, where it was like accepting that you're not the people that you have to, that, that mentored you in life. You don't have to be them. You can still be your own person. Learn from them, appreciate them, but you're not them. You are you. And... Um, and set forth into your own field, into your own adventure, uh, known as life, as the person that you want to be, and that yeah, to decide like, you know, are you are you going to serve it with revenge and violence, or are you going to serve it with love, a family, and a child, and a beautiful farm, you know, and a good community, you know, at the end of the day, which one are you going to appreciate more? And in the sort of way, I mean, there's a lot of really like baseline themes in terms of storytelling and, and very much like when you talk about sort of coming of age stories for, for definitely, certainly Abby, but more so for Ellie, um, there's that traditional coming of age story. There's the breaking the cycle of revenge story. And those are sort of the big, you know, and, and a story about the power of forgiveness and family and a chosen family and acceptance and on and on. There's a lot running in there. And I think there's a level of balancing the amount of each of these things and then knitting them together with all these additional details and layers, things unsaid and things just shaped out roughly where a world starts to become a living world. And I think something we haven't talked about is that for me, certainly in the second game, much more so than the first, and I think part of that's technological limitations and part of that's having to spend time on setup. Very often the sequel is worse than the original. And this is one of those very few cases where I think mostly because ironically, this very verdant world where nature is reclaiming everything, it feels much more like a living world. It feels inhabited and full. And you can safely assume that if we were to take a trip down to, you know, Tampa Beach, that there would be some group of some sort of human monsters trying to eke their way out in the world. On Tampa Beach, post-apocalypse, and that could be an interesting adventure to have, too, but you find it fully likely that that would be the case. Yes, and um, it's funny that you say that, too, again, about, like, sequels, because sequels, sequels are really hard to do on a hyper-successful telling of a first story. Um, a lot of people, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but uh, there is a film 
called Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, and it is the yeah, it's it's it is the it is um uh uh it is like it's the last thing holding all of Star Wars together. It, it is um it, it it's it's it is the best Star Wars film made. Uh, it's personally not my favorite. My favorite's the first one, but that's just for personal reasons. But um, anyway, when Empire Strikes Back came out, it is now heralded as one of the you know best films ever made. Definitely the best Star Wars film ever made. But when it came yeah. out, a lot of people didn't like it. It got heavy criticism. So that so that's the thing. Like that was outside of obviously my age range. I think like I had as a small child Star Wars blankets and pillows and toys, but. It, just a thing that like eventually came on TNT, you know, <laughs> okay. and like, but my parents specifically, I think my dad was like really, really into it. And I kind of, I remember watching them and being, you know, sort of taken with it, but also like I was like three or four or something and you know, it's the space opera and it's the laser swords, you know, like I, I didn't really have a thing, but I know as I got into films more and more and more, there was this like prevailing theme you know that there were arguments about which of the first original trilogy was sort of the best and and i think after a period of time it kind of just became ensconced that the the second one was by far yes and and sequels are hard to do because it's like you got to take your heroes from the first one at the end of the first story of whatever it is you know they've they've patched up their wounds they put the band-aids on they've healed they get resolution and they get to sail into the sunset happy and then you have to reopen all those wounds again, and it's really hard to do to A, make it believable, and B, make it interesting. Um, another great example of like a sequel that was made, um, I'm going to actually go back to it again, was Metal Gear Solid 2. When that game yeah. came out, people were furious because they did this crazy thing where they made you play as this really weird white-haired guy that's super effeminate and it's very bizarre and has a really weird backstory and doesn't really make sense in the world of Metal Gear Solid. But what I'm trying to get at is that like, now, years later, like everyone loves Metal Gear Solid 2. There are more people now saying they love it. And so I'm interested to see, as we've talked about, there was controversy with this game. Uh, you know, killing off Joel, having very strong women, list goes on. Um, uh, I'm interested to see how history will take it i i'm interested to see what people will be saying 10 I'm years from very, now i'm very interested in uh, that aspect of things i guess to me to find a game like if you go and you just look up critical reviews from like tenure critics of the last of us 2 you can find people who have their qualms with it but but you can't find many of them it's kind of like a universally acclaimed, you know, very, very high overall score, uh, seen as sort of a universal masterpiece, and it's won, I don't know how many awards. Um, And yet, if you go and you actually talk to the people who are the fan base, it's it's not binary, but it's pretty fucking close. And I think that that is super, super exciting, because if I... So, and I also know that, like, the vitriol heaped against it turned into a lot of like very serious, dangerous trolling of the the creators, uh, the actors themselves receiving death threats. Uh, it got very savage, and kind of to catch that for people who don't play video games, this is weird even for video game people. And and so it it really got to this fevered pitch or this point where it was the most virulent, homophobic, sexist violent alpha male response. So Halle Gross and Neil Druckmann 
I think had, you know, I, I remember reading some of their press releases afterwards regarding some of this sort of uproar and, you know, they're very, I, I assume, extremely proud of the game they crafted. Um, I would hope so. I would really hope so. And I hope what happens is, well, first, as a huge fan of the series, I really hope that they take the story further. Even if that's necessarily Ellie's story, because I think Ellie's story could be more or less finished, although I have some hopeful ideas about how it might not be. Um, but being able to take this world further and continue to be disruptive in the way they tell those stories, you know, when you can get 20 million people having an argument about trans representation in a way that actually furthers that social technology into real substantial societal changes for a class of people who have it just as bad as fucking anybody, um, that is real power. And that's buried in, in art as we go back through the years when we talk about, you know, why is comedy kind of a pr protected class of entertainment where it's kind of okay to say things that are a little bit dangerous. And, and, and certainly we're now playing with technology of how much you should say before you're just being hurtful. Um, that it's really important that we discuss comedy uh, as a protected class in the same way we discuss political commentary as a protected class, because if we can't topple giants and start big societal fabric-based discussions from a jumping-off point of unifying people with a story or an idea or a laugh, um, then we're kind of missing the best part of storytelling, the best part of song, the best part of video games. It's just a dumb video game. But for on a personal level, it left me completely obliterated, you know, for weeks after I played it. And it yeah, you felt it. had me ruminating on things I haven't given a moment's thought since they happened to me years ago. And diving deeply into like, why am I having this <laughs> emotional response to this fictional game? Um, but on a quite larger scale, these sorts of sort of stories have the power to actually get people to change their minds. Yeah, and to hopefully change their minds for the better and, and for the, the, the better acceptance of your fellow, you know, your fellow human. Um. <laughs> and look, look, Final Fantasy Tactics, some great writing in there. Didn't really change my mind about too much. And I got to tell you, Castle of the Night, uh, Symphony of the Night, uh, not great writing, just really fun. Highly recommended. Not changing people's lives. No, but, um, and it's also... Um, it's it's kind of on the same note, yeah. Like I, I in my lifetime, I take story very seriously. Story is what built your house. Story is what provided all the technology we're using right now to create this podcast, and even for you, the listener, to listen to the podcast. It was all through story. Story is communication, and it is vital to human existence. It's the thing that we have that separates us from dogs and cats and sheep and cows is the ability to tell stories. Story is important. Stories shape generations. Stories define people and shape culture. I mean, look at look I mean seriously, look at look look at NASA. Look at what they're doing with these trips to the moon and you go up to I'm just pulling this out of my ass. I have no real study on this, but I would venture to bet that I don't know, 40% of those people that are working on this at NASA did it because they were huge fans of Star Trek. I mean... Well, and let's take that a step further with the space race. When we talk about storytelling, we sent an engraved gold plate on Voyager out into the furthest reaches of the solar system 
with raw data, symbolic data that tells the story of who we are and where we came from, that included music, that included, you know, written language that gave people the DNA to unlock and at least a base level understanding from an alien perspective, the binary ones and zeros that make up our lived human experience on this planet that should be a good measurement of how powerful story is exactly and how it it's there i guarantee you anyone anyone listening that there is there is something you saw in your life that made you who you are today and yeah. i can you know i can 1 million percent guarantee that some of that is circumstantial you know I got beat up as a kid. Now I'm strong and muscly, but some of it can also come from art and the stories and the involvement of said stories and what it meant to you that shaped who you are. And so that's what I think ultimately this game is trying to say is, is, you know, life, life is hard. Be kind. Um, we, we, we don't need, you know, in it's, it's funny too. It's to me where it's like a game about acceptance is issues of people having acceptance. And it's just like, you just kind of want to hit them on the back of the head and be like, did you, did you play the same game as me? Like, did you see, did you see the things? Because I saw the things, but I'm not mad. Like, and I think that's, that's a thing that really divides when I read various people's perspectives on this. I feel like it's a really good Rorschach test for where they're, emotional maturity and and, i mean this sounds so geeky because basically what i'm saying and i will fucking die on this hill is that if you have a low level of emotional maturity you will not be able to fully enjoy this game but i actually do believe that they managed to craft a bit of a sieve through which you can pour that statement through and what comes out on the other side is people who have the ability to really be unhappy with what's happening but also detect the deeper layers of meaning and the value of the participating characters from their own sort of uh, moral modalities and say, you know what, I, I don't love what happens. I, you know, I wish Joel could have been a playable character in part three. Don't get me wrong. You know, as much as anybody, but is that the most important thing going on here? Or is it the incredibly subtle, lovely, sometimes frustrating tale that's being told, that's being told in a believable way about people who are flawed and uh, coming into high contact with each other under incredibly tense circumstances. I'm, yeah, I'm interested to see if they will make a third one. I don't know, man. That's what I mean by, like, the 10-year run of this. Like, if I, okay, let's make bets right here. Today, today's date is August 1st, 2021. I'm speaking to Christopher Livingood, and we are going to uh, make bets right now in gambles. I bet $10,000 that they will have another game made in less than 10 years from now. I I totally 100% agree with that, but I want to get a little more granular. I bet that that game centers on Abby finding the fireflies and Ellie actually getting the ending she always thought she deserved. Yeah, I I feel like if there's a third game, Ellie Ellie's going to finally yeah, do the deed and uh sacrifice yourself for like the good of everybody. Yeah. That's that's got to be the way it goes down, man. I mean, I I thought about it a lot. And um I bet Abby will if I had to guess, Abby's going to die helping Ellie. Oh yeah. And then are you ready for the number one thing that's going to make me the most money? What what is it? What's your what's your like third tier? <laughs> 
Then instead of using but, instead of using the well-trained army that you went onto the far side moon of Endor with, you're going to use little teddy bears. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> you're going to use little yeah. little little teddy bears with sticks and rope, and that's what's going to defeat the zombie-like fungus at the end. That's my predictions for the Last of Us Three. I'm excited about it. I can't wait to see it. It's going to be better than that. Is 20 years later when they make three more. Last of Us is... Bought by Disney? Yeah, just completely under the umbrella of the, the loving care of Disney Corporation. <laughs> and Thor will be there, and the Exhumed Corpse of Robert Downey Jr. will be there. Exactly. Incredible. All of your favorite catchphrases will get said at least once, with like low French horn playing in the background. I will tell you, though, if you want to see something really, really cool, um, The Last of Us 1, between the production of 1 and 2... Troy Baker and the rest of the cast did a one-night-only live play set from the rest of the game. Okay, yeah, I'll look into that. And it's, it's, I think, available on YouTube, and it gives you an opportunity to see the actual actors. I don't know if you've seen any of the the behind-the-scenes footage, but, Mm -mm -mm. you know, it's very hard to do deeply emotional acting while you're wearing a mocap suit uh, because it's just crazy, but... um, those two kids, Ashley and, and Troy, deserve all of the praise heaped upon them because the performances, if you've been watching the behind-the-scenes footage just of their mocap performances from the first game, it is really intensely good acting. I would have to imagine what's really hard in making this game is that line between a cinematic adventure versus a video game. Um, like, the one thing, I'll be a million percent honest, that I found very funny is you're getting this story, this epic human told story and then you're playing the game and you're popping pills to increase your stealth it's kind of funny but i understand it because it's a game mechanic that's very popular in video games yeah but you're basically taking steroids the entire time to become better at listening and yeah you find a you find a empty tin can and now and some duct tape and now you have a silencer on your pistol and it's just like whatever i can let it go it's fine it's a gameplay mechanic i understand it you know it's it, it is a little funny on that front and um it leans more into kind of just improvised weapons. And, you know, it's interesting as you go through your second or third playthrough, you get to a point where, like, you max out on weapon upgrades and you max out on character upgrades. And all of those upgrades disappear from the world state. And so then you're just as good as you always wanted to be on your feet and as situationally aware as you hoped you would be. And the game really on the second playthrough when you're fully statted out and everything's upgraded for the first time really starts to melt totally away for me you know usually get a cue to hit triangle or square but it's in white it's in a very fine font and it's it's there just because they have to give you something but it is absolutely as little as they as they possibly can Uh, and i think one as we're sort of wrapping this up one of the things we should say is that in the spirit of inclusion, one of the things that they really received rightfully just a huge amount of feedback on was, let's say that you are one of many kinds of colorblind. Well, they have a for each of those colorblindnesses. Let's say that you are somebody who is operating with limited uh, dexterity or missing a hand. Um, they have a way to make that playable for you. And as we talked about, you know, sort of in the last sort of half of this, if you are blind, there's actually somebody, I think there are many somebodies at this point who have completed the game based on sound alone. And going out of their way to create a, a kind of game that is 
that allows everyone to belly up to the bar and take on that challenge and to create a story that can be told just through sound alone is very, very powerful. Yeah, and I'm sure it took a lot of extra time and effort, but what it made way for was, I think, um, something that's, you know, again, just so much more universal if you just let it be. I would agree. I think that, um, yeah, they, they, yeah, they did a bang up job. They, they knew what they were doing. I, it was made by people that you can tell have worked on games, have been dedicated to games to create a great game from start to finish. And, uh, yeah, it's awesome. Well, so now as we kind of bring this to a close, I will simply say that come the next 10 years, if last of us three is not made, as we described, he walked <laughs> We owe each other ten thousand dollars. Deal. I'll pay. Yeah, I'll write you a check for ten thousand dollars. I'll write, write you a check for ten thousand dollars. I'll draw a little Ewok in the signature line, <laughs> and then we just won't cash each other's check. How does that sound? <laughs> there we go. Problem. Yeah. Perfect. Um, no, it's cool, man, and I appreciate you sharing these with me because I. It's funny. I. I am always a person that like. There's always defining moments in people's lives, like. Um, like if I listen to Radiohead's Kid A, I am 18 years old again, living in Canada at sure. film school. And if I, you know, like another one I can think of is um, Damon Elburn's solo album. It's called Everyday Robots. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, that was an album uh, I was listening to when I moved to Saudi Arabia. So when I listen to that, I, I, I'm that person again. And yeah, whenever I will play or talk about these games... There's going to be Christopher Livengood right stapled at the front of my mind. I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, I once had a great friend who shared this with me. And yeah. uh, and for that, I am thankful. So thank you for sharing these fine, fine games with me and finally forcing Absolutely. me to sit down and play it. I do appreciate it, my friend. It's my pleasure, man. That's it, man. I, I highly recommend if we have not spoiled it to death already, even if we have. <laughs> yeah. Totally awesome. I would agree. If we, if you, if you still haven't played these games, there is so much nuance and so many points that we have left out of that still offer self-interpretation uh, and an experience that only you yourself can find. Um, either way, I also want to thank everybody listening for uh, getting through the 26 parts that are the technically one yeah. episode. So uh, I, we appreciate your commitment uh, and thank you for making it this far. And uh, Chris, thanks for being here today. My pleasure, man. And thank you for everybody for putting up with this as well. I know neither one of us is uh, the least chatty person, but uh, I definitely appreciate the audience. <laughs> this is just this is what happens when you get yeah two 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 extroverts nerds <laughs> that that have been stuck in a stuck in a pandemic quarantine for a long time and now have the ability yeah. to talk about something that they found passionately interesting. So. Um, yeah, so anyway, thanks again, Chris. Uh, uh, next episode, I don't think will be this long. Maybe it will be, but um, we're going to be talking we're about... We're going to talk about something really cool. We're going to talk this. about one of my favorite video games uh, for different reasons, but still interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about the game Alien Isolation, uh, which is a game that I shared with Chris, and I'm excited to hear what he has I to say about it. I would never have played it if it were not for this fine, fine gentleman, and I'm very glad I did. Awesome, so, awesome. Yeah. All right, well, we'll talk about that next week. And um, so as my friend Janine would say, revenge is only best served with just a shirt on. Hashtag Pooh Bear style. All right, everybody, this has been the You Show Show. We'll see you next week. Peace. There we go. That's it. All right. That's, That's beautiful. <laughs> episode 743 in the bag, my friend. Oh, my God. Thank you. Whew.